Hi, I'm Bob Garlick, your host. Welcome to Season 3 of the Business Book Talk podcast. On each show, we will discover another great book that can help you improve yourself and your business. So, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this week's author and find out what makes this book a great read. Hey everybody, Bob again, and I've got Ryan Holiday on the line. He's got this outrageous book, uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying. So the interview, you know, when you listen to it, it might be all BS. You never know. Ryan, what have you been doing uh, recently? Uh, so I'm working on the uh, the paperback of Trust Me, I'm Lying, which should come out in a few months. Um, it's been, uh, it's been a, a crazy ride for me. I, you know, I did my book this summer. And then I did uh, two best-selling books in the last uh, two weeks for, for some of my clients. So I'm very busy. Confessions of a Media Manipulator. You've uh, basically come out and, and uh, told the truth about what it's like to be in the PR and the communication industry. And it's a real how-to book, you know, going through it. I, I love the feel. Uh, it's almost got a... Uh, kind of like a detective feel to it. It's, it's the paper, the way it's laid out. It, it, it's, it's nice. It's very readable. What, uh, what motivated you to uh, do the book? Well, so, uh, I mean, I've been in marketing uh, for some time, and, and I'm a voracious reader. I love reading. And I, so I would read these marketing and Internet books when they would come out, and I felt like they were diametrically opposed to, to sort of my experience. They were not how I saw things going at all. And so I felt like they were sort of giving, giving the public and particularly sort of small businesses and people who had such a remote, this Pollyanna-ish fake version of how marketing really was. And I felt like it was time for someone to show exactly how it did work and, you know, sort of warts and all, uh, because, you know, people have a lot riding on it. If you, if your impression is that, the internet and the sort of the online news space is this meritocracy where good, good stuff flows to the top and you invest your life savings in a startup or you spend, you know, uh, years of your life working on a book and then you expect it to get publicity and press because it's good. You're going to be sorely disappointed and your project is not going to reach the people that you want to reach. And I felt like I was in a position to sort of reveal my knowledge to prevent that from happening for, for people who, who took the time to read it. Okay, so my question is, and I think this is what everybody is trying to figure out on uh, with, with social media, with blogging, with everything, what is the ROI or can you define what people should be expecting when using content uh, to uh, get the word out? Well, I think, I think the, the big hurdle online is making stuff that can be heard over all the other stuff. So it's like, look, social media is a great way to share things. You just have to understand that on the internet, and I think people forget this, is like porn is always a click away, right? Or viral videos are only a click away. And so people spend all this time and energy making stuff that they think is good, and they forget what they're competing against, and they forget sort of how unfair a competitive advantage some of these other things that they're competing with have. And so they make things that make sense in the old model 
but just don't work online. So like uh, to tie this back to books, one of my favorite examples is like people spend so much time developing book covers, right? They put the blurbs on there and, and um, it's these tiny little graphics and whatever. And they forget that the majority of the people who are going to see their book are not going to see their book walking through a bookstore. They're going to see it as an Amazon thumbnail. And so they kind of, what they, what they forget about social media is that it has a totally new set of constraints and a totally new set of limitations. And to be successful in that space, you have to design things specifically around those limitations and constraints. So your stuff really pops and makes a difference. Because if you're trying to, if you create a book cover that's, you know, five by seven and then try to jam it into a 125 by 125 pixel space, a lot's going to get lost in translation and your stuff's not going to do as well. Mm. Yeah, well, definitely it's hard to stand out. There's so much mediocrity out there. But, you know, I, I talk with clients every now and again, and they and I ask them, my first question is, like, okay, you want to do a blog. Uh, how long does it take you to write a 250 or 500-word blog post? And they say, well, you know, two, three hours. And I said, y- you're wasting your time. Spend five minutes getting the damn thing out and be prolific. What's the point? Uh, we're not doing uh, high-end pros here. We're just trying to get core learning and we're trying to educate people as quickly and as efficiently as possible because nobody has any time. Right. No, no, you're, you're totally right. And, and what they're doing is they're thinking, they're forgetting that it doesn't matter how much time you spend making the content because if you don't spend an equal or greater amount of time marketing that content, no one will see it and all that effort will be wasted. And so people kind of think that their job as creators or as artists or writers or producers or whatever they are is that's their only job. And they think, Hey, I'm going to hand this book off to a publisher and they're going to market it for me, or I'm going to hire a PR firm and they're going to take care of that for me, or I'm going to put this blog post up and then tweet it. And then it's magically going to spread over Twitter. And in fact, that's, that's not only not what's going to happen, but you're going to be wasting all your time. And so if you're not a good marketer and you don't understand how to make these things work and how to, how to get your content in front of people, it doesn't matter how good it is because it's going to get lost because there's a million other sites out there doing a million other things and they're, uh, they're focused uh, on the right leverage points and you're not. Well, you know, you're a master of that, you know, going through the book, some of the stories are outrageous. Um, can you share with us uh, one of your, your more favorite exploits to get uh, people's attention? I mean, one of my favorite ones is, is, is one that I did for the book. Um, I used a service, and this is a good example of something that has practical applications and then I think also illustrates problems with the current system. Um, I wanted to show that blogs and the media today will print anything from anyone and not fact check it. So I used this service called helperreporterout.com, which if people don't know what that is, it's the service where you can sign up as an expert and then pitch reporters about your services or vice versa. Reporters can pitch you about their stories and you can apply to be the source in that story. And so my theory was any reporter who's using this service instead of cultivating their own network of sources doesn't really care about what they print and doesn't have very high standards. So for about six months in early um, 2012, I pretended to be an expert about anything that these reporters wanted to hear about, whether that was vinyl records or boat winterization or um, germophobia 
or insomnia or any number of things that I know actually know nothing about. But I was able to, to pass as an expert in the most important media outlets in the world, from the New York Times to ABC News to the Today Show. And then in anticipation of the book coming out, I revealed this, this uh, stunt that I had orchestrated, and it got um, millions of pages across the Internet. The Forbes story alone, who, who broke the, the news, did uh, 160,000 pages um, in the front page of Yahoo, uh, press all over the world, from, from France to Malaysia. And I, I think this illustrates sort of what we're talking about in a couple of ways, which is, one, it's sort of an interesting thing that's controversial, and it makes people talk. I timed the release. I made sure that reporters would know about it, and I, I helped spread it along. And I took advantage of a loophole in the system that I saw that other people weren't doing, and I, I, I made a, a strong statement. I didn't just come out and say, hey, help the reporter out. It's dangerous. Be careful. No, I, I made it um, like almost an art project, right? Like it, it, this is an artistic statement of some kind. And... Uh, that's sort of what's behind most of my work usually is, is making some sort of loud public statement that either offends people or makes them laugh or makes them uh, worried or, or it provokes a reaction because it's, you want to provoke a reaction because at the, at the core of it, the reaction you want is for them to send a link about you to someone else. Well, you know, at the end of the day, it goes back to the old adage, um, you know, any press is good press because you're breaking right. through. Uh, you know, and, and I talk with clients and they get all worried about reputation management and this and that. And, and they don't realize that they have no reputation because nobody even knows they exist. So how important or how dangerous is bad press that gets out of control? Yeah, I mean, like uh, people say, like, oh, where do you draw the line? Uh, aren't, you, aren't you worried about what they're saying? And to me, I think obscurity is a far more worrisome idea than being talked about negatively. And what you have to realize online is that it's very easy to be very negative, but a lot of people don't mean what they're saying. It's just this sort of, like, bombastic sort of Internet tone where everyone's upset about something, but then in private, they're like, oh, yeah, that was awesome. That was hilarious. And you can kind of use that to your advantage. This sort of outrage cycle that we have on the Internet is an effective way to get attention, provided that you're, you're in a business that can withstand outrage like that. So I think, I think um, all press is good press. This goes all the way back to, to P.T. Barnum, and, and it's, it's basically rooted in the idea of, look, People have to be talking about you. You've got to be courting attention. And sometimes positive attention isn't available, but negative attention is, and, and don't be afraid to grab it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, when you were writing the book, because I, I ask this for everybody that, that I get on the show. What was the aha moment for? Because a lot of time when you're writing the book, you're, you're, you've got you know all this knowledge that you're trying to impart onto pages, and you're ready, and you say, oh, this is is now crystal clear for me. So what was your aha moment when you write, wrote the book? I don't know if it came when I was writing, but it came uh, when I was researching for the book. I, I, I read very heavily and very widely for this book, uh, all the way back to lots of books that were written about sort of journalism in the early 1900s. And I was reading this book. It's actually a book by Upton Sinclair called The Past Check. And um, it, he did an uh, After the Jungle, which was his expose of, uh, of 
of the meatpacking industry, he did an expose of journalism itself. And so in this thing, I'm reading it, and it just hit me one day. It's like, man, you could replace the word newspaper with blog and republish this book right now, and it would be successful. And that's that's crazy that that history. Here we are, a hundred so hundred or so years later, and the same things that he's talking about are true again. And that's really what sent me down this rabbit hole of understanding the economics of the news and understanding the economics of online media and what makes it tick. And then I discovered a variety of ways of taking advantage of that, of experimenting with it, of explaining it. And that's sort of what I rooted. That's the theory that I rooted my book in. How outside of the box do people really have to be thinking to even make a ripple in the basically billions of words that are being published every day? I mean, you you got to understand that there's a million people out there trying to be heard over a million other people. And if you just, if you stay conservative and you stay calm and slow and deliberate, you're going to have trouble being heard over them. And uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to lower your standards, but you do have to understand that presentation matters. And volume matters, frankly. And without those things, you don't stand much of a chance. A very good point, volume. When you say volume, how do you define volume for people? Like what, what is adequate volume? Because you've you got to remember that there's, there's businesses out there that are small. They don't have huge resources. How much time and energy should they be putting into online communications and, and, and marketing and PR compared to larger organizations that, that have people that are doing it full time? Well, I think you've got to ask yourself, who are your customers? Who are you trying to reach, right? And perhaps being on the front page of Gawker, if you own a yoga studio in Iowa, doesn't really matter because a good percentage of your audience is not reading that site. And so for you, maybe it's a tiny little blog in your small town that everyone seems to read, and that's the only outlet that you really need to go after. Um, So by volume, I'm referring to... I like to look for amplification uh, by finding the sort of the right radars to register on. So like, let's say I'm trying to influence booksellers that like they should know about my book and care about it. Right. I'm not going to try to make the front page of New York, the New York times to hope that those booksellers see that article among the other hundreds of thousands of people and then start to, to talk or know about my book. I'm going to find out what blogs are popular within the book industry, which I know book managers, like the managers at bookstores, book buyers, book publicists, book reporters. I'm going to find the sites that they read, and I'm going to focus my energies exclusively on that site because I'm going to get the biggest ROI there, and I'm going to ignore the other stuff because it doesn't really matter to what I'm doing. Well, at the end of the day, and, and the more I talk to people and, and the more I, I get into this you know, uh, internet tool, it's all about community. It's knowing who you're trying to get, uh, communicate to, and building up trust and relationships. So it goes back to, and like you were saying, like 100 years ago, human nature has not changed. It's all about trust. It's all about getting to know people and bringing them content that is relevant to their lives. Um, how do people do that without being boring? Well, I don't. I think that that's inherently an interesting thing. If you're making things that are relevant to people's lives that they trust and value and 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 care about, that's not boring. 
What's boring is when people talk about things that are personally important to themselves or relevant only to themselves or way too insidery or, or uh, needlessly academic or pedantic or, or detailed. Like, that's what gets boring. And what gets boring is when you try to force something on the market that it doesn't want. What's exciting is when you find something that the market wants and present it in a new way or find something that the market doesn't know that it wants but it actually needs or, or has a strong use for. That's when you have something explosive and, and, and lucrative and, and, and interesting. Okay, the book's basically two books in one. You know, you, you, uh, you start reading mm-hmm. and suddenly it's like book two, The Monster Attacks. Why did you break the book into two sections? Well, um, deep down, I think I, I, I kind of, and this goes to what we were just talking about, I really am worried about the system as it is. I think it's got a lot of vulnerabilities and dangers. And so I wanted to write a book that highlighted those things. That was personally important to me. But I realized that only a smaller, a smaller group of people cares about that stuff. And if you write a book that only appeals to journalists, people in the media, and academics, you're not going to sell very many copies, and you're not going to reach people. And conversely, if you write a book that only matters to marketing people, you're going to skip the audience that, that makes a difference in terms of like thought leadership. You know, and so what I decided to do was I would write a book that appeals to each of them, that combines what both of them need and want. And then hopefully, so if you read the book because you're a marketer, you're going to start with the first book and it's going to have a lot of value to you. And maybe you'll continue on to the second half and pick up the message that, that I really think is important for that person to hear. And conversely, if you're a reporter and you're, or uh, someone in the industry, you're going to read the second half and that's going to, you know, be interesting to you but I'm going to show you another part of the world that you don't usually have that much involvement in. And that's, that's where I'm giving away the secrets of, of, of marketing and, and PR strategy. And so I thought it was a way that I could suck in both audiences, serve them both well, and, and sort of serve my own artistic vision as well. You use a very good word there, giving away. There are a lot of people out there on the Internet that have this philosophy, give it all away. In fact, the more you give away, the more you blow people away and realize that, wow, you know, they're not going to steal what you're giving away. They're just going to respect you. Well, this guy knows it. We don't have time to do all these hundreds and hundreds of things that he recommends that we do. Let's just hire the person, get it over with. Are you finding that that's what's happening with you? Yeah, it's funny. I, I wrote this book sort of giving away my secrets. And, and when I was doing it, the publisher and other people were like, Ryan, are you worried you're going to like uh, write yourself out of a job? And in fact, the opposite has happened. I've had more clients than I know what to do with. I think books at the end of the day are fantastic business cards. They sort of show that you not only know what you're talking about and good at it, you're so good at it that you can explain it in a concise, articulate way. And that's how good your handle on it is. And so for me, sort of establishing myself as an expert publicly has, has led to more business for me. So I gave it away and um, more than a um, more than equal amount has come back to me for sure. If you were giving advice to a business people, a uh, business person, so we're talking a small business person, they, you know, they've got a, a, a relatively small staff, they've got limited resources, that type of thing, because there are a lot of people out there these days that are in that boat. What would be your 
uh, golden piece of advice for them? Yeah, so if we're talking about marketing, um, I would say marketing is not just the stuff you give to the public. It's not just the reporters that you pitch or the ads that you buy or the signs that you put up. It's also your business itself. The more interesting and provocative and new and exciting your idea itself is and the presentation and packaging and, and story behind that idea the more successful you're going to be in all those things. And people, people forget that and they, they go like, yeah, my business is boring, but I can set it up with some advertisements or with, with a good social media campaign. It's like you, you'd be better off not even trying because your thing is dead in the water if, if it doesn't start from an interesting perspective. And so that's what I would focus my energy on is getting my ducks in a row and, and making something that's worth talking about so then when I put energy into making people talk, they feed off of each other. You use the word pitch a reporter. How does yeah. how do you pitch a reporter these days? It used to be back, you know, many years ago, is you build a relationship, you take them to lunch, you wine them, dine them a little bit, and they say, hey, dude, give me a favor, I bought you a steak. Um, that right. doesn't work anymore. How do you pitch a reporter? Well, you have to understand that today reporters, that, that environment was one based on scarcity, right? That reporter has access to publishing in a newspaper, which has a limited amount of space. Well, now blogs have an infinite amount of space. So it's actually a seller's market, not a buyer's market. So if you're a business that has a story that will get a blog pages that will make people talk and will make that reporter's job easier, you're in the driver's seat. And so if you send an email that lays out all the details and puts a, puts a story with a nice big bow on top to a reporter, they're going to thank you. You don't have to buy them a steak. They, they might have to buy you a steak because you're helping make their job easier. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I remember when it, we used to design magazines back in Bangkok, and uh, anytime a newspaper would send me a nice package with a bow on top, I would just put the story in. I mean, we tweak it a little bit, but yep. I remember getting a shot from uh, these guys who were building a new hotel, and they got all the GMs in hard hats, in suits, in sitting in this beautiful uh, lounge couch, except it was you could see the city in the background because they were in this basically structure that hadn't been built yet. It was just concrete right. 30 feet up in the air. Well, they got a half page spread on that picture because I knew that my, you know, uh, reading audience was going to stop and look at that page that gave value to the magazine. That rule, right. that strategy still works today. Absolutely. So if people are creating wow content, how much of it is not actually the content, but the graphics or the um, the headline compared to the actual meat of the article? Um, like, look, if, if there is no meat to it, it doesn't matter how good the photos are. But I would say, as a general rule, it's like, look, video is more interesting than photos, and photos are more interesting than text. And so you can add value to something or increase its presentation value by adding a photo or adding a video. Um, and that's always going to be more interesting and catch people's eyes easier than, than text. But, you know, a really fantastic 500 word blog post can do just as well as a, as a mediocre photo. Um, so it, it 
all it all depends. There's no hard and fast rule. It's just I mean, we're a we're a visual species and, and we like things that catch our eye and when you have a limited amount of time a photo can be a nice shortcut. Let's talk about viral, um because I, I, is it a fallacy? Can you make something viral or is it just a luck of the draw? No, I mean, of course, there, there are certain principles behind virality that, that if you don't have, you're definitely not going to go viral. So um, they, they've done all sorts of studies about what things tend to spread the, the most. And it, it turns out that high valence emotions are one of the, the number one predictors of virality. So that does it provoke an extreme reaction. So something that makes someone extremely angry is going to spread better than makes someone kind of happy or sadness. It turns out is kind of an unviral emotion because no one wants to pass along something that's sad to a friend. So to a certain degree, there is luck involved, right? Who discovers your thing? How influential are they? Do they pass it around? But there are plenty of YouTube channels out there that have multiple videos with tens, if not hundreds of millions of views. And that's because they've, they've sort of isolated these secrets and they, they replicate them. Um, are you going to make back-to-back videos that, that do hundreds of millions of views because you, you studied these principles? Of course not. Just like there's very few filmmakers who have made multiple blockbuster movies, um, it's, harder, it's, it's harder than it seems. But if you do it right, you can make something that, that people think is worth spreading. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, before we go, because I know you're really super tight for time, where can people go to get more information about your book and you? Um, so the book's called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. The book is in all bookstores. You can see it on Amazon. You can go to trustmeimlying.com or ryanholiday.net, which is my, uh, my personal site. Cool. Ryan, before we go, one last thing. On your book cover, you've got this big, giant monster sneaking up on your back. Mm-hmm. What the heck is the monster symbolizing? So for me, I, I feel like uh, this, this beast of, of internet content that you have to feed to get attention and, and generate awareness is this monster that we're all feeding. And um, you just always want to remember that, that even though you're feeding it and maybe today it's eating out of your hand, you're not always going to be able to control it and you want to be prepared for when it uh, inevitably attacks you. That's wonderful and dark. I love it. Ryan, thank you for... <laughs> Thank you very much for spending some time with us this morning. Um, awesome, and uh, I look forward to having the opportunity to chat with you again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was an awesome book. We have some great new books and authors for you to meet in the coming shows, and I know you will enjoy them immensely. You can contact me directly at contactbob.tell or visit our website at www.businessbooktalk.com. See you next week. 